This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This is a recording by Steve Anderson of A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, Chapter 15, Sandy's Tale. And so I'm proprietor of some knights, said I, as we rode off. Who would ever have supposed that I should live to list up assets of that sort? I shan't know what to do with them, unless I raffle them off. How many of them are there, Sandy? Seven, please you, sir, and their squires. It is a good haul. Who are they? Where do they hang out? Where do they hang out? Yes, where do they live? Ah, I understood thee not. That will I tell as soons. Then she said, musingly and softly, turning the words daintily over her tongue, Hang they out. Hang they out. Where hang? Where do they hang out? Eh, right so. Where do they hang out? Of a truth, the phrase hath a fair and winsome grace, and is prettily worded withal. I will repeat it anon and anon in my idlest, whereby I may peradventure learn it. Where do they hang out? Even so. Already it falleth trippingly from my tongue, and forasmuch as... Don't forget the cowboys, Sandy. Cowboys? Yes, the knights, you know. You were going to tell me about them? A while back, you remember. Figuratively speaking, game's called. Game? Yes, yes, yes. Go to the bat. I mean, get to work on your statistics, and don't burn so much kindling getting your fire started. Tell me about the knights. I will well, and lightly will begin. So they two departed and rode into a great forest, and... Great Scott! You see, I recognized my mistake at once. I had set her works a-going. It was my own fault. She would be thirty days getting down to those facts, and she generally began without a preface and finished without a result. If you interrupted her, she would either go right along without noticing or answer with a couple of words and go back and say the sentence over again. So interruptions only did harm. And yet I had to interrupt, and interrupt pretty frequently, too, in order to save my life. A person would die if he let her monotony drip on him right along all day. Great Scott, I said in my distress. She went right back and began over again. So they two departed and rode into a great forest, and... Which two? Sir Gwaine and Sir Ewaine. And so they came to an abbey of monks, and there were well lodged. So on the morn they heard their masses in the abbey, and so they rode forth till they came to a great forest. Then was Sir Gawain where, in a valley, by a turret, of twelve fair damsels and two knights armed on great horses, and the damsels went to and fro by a tree. And then was Sir Gawain where, how there hung a white shield on that tree, and ever as the dambles came by it, they spit upon it, and some threw mire upon the shield. 
Now, if I hadn't seen the like myself in this country, Sandy, I wouldn't believe it. But I've seen it, and I can just see those creatures now parading before that shield and acting like that. The women here do certainly act like all possessed. Yes, and I mean your best, too. Society's very choicest brands. The humblest hello girl along ten thousand miles of wire could teach gentleness, patience, modesty, manners to the highest duchess in Arthur's land. Hello, girl? Yes, but don't you ask me to explain. It's a new kind of girl. They don't have them here. One often speaks sharply to them when they are not the least in fault, and he can't get over feeling sorry for it and ashamed of himself in thirteen hundred years. It's such shabby, mean conduct, and so unprovoked. The fact is, no gentleman ever does it. Though I... well, I myself, if I've got to confess... Peradventure, she... Never mind her. Never mind her. I tell you, I couldn't ever explain her so you would understand. Even so be it, sith ye are so minded. Then Sir Gawain and Sir Ewain went and saluted them, and asked them why they did that despite to the shield. Sir, said the damsels, we shall tell you. There is a knight in the country that owneth this white shield, and he is a passing good man of his hands, but he hateth all ladies and gentlewomen, and therefore we do all this despite to the shield. I will say you, said Sir Gawain, it beseemeth evil a good knight to despise all ladies and gentlewomen. And peradventure, though he hate you, he hath some cause, and peradventure he loveth in some other places ladies and gentlewomen and to be loved again, and he such a man of prowess as ye speak of. Man of prowess, yes, that is the man to please them, Sandy. Man of brains, that is a thing they never think of. Tom Sayers, John Hannon, John L. Sullivan, pity but you could be here. You would have your legs under the round table and a sir in front of your names within twenty-four hours and you could bring about a new distribution of the married princesses and duchesses of the court in another twenty-four. The fact is, it is just a sort of polished-up court of Comanches, and there isn't a squaw in it who doesn't stand ready at the dropping of a hat to desert to the buck with the biggest string of scalps at his belt. And he be such a man of prowess as ye speak of, said Sir Gawain. Now what is his name? Sir, said they, his name is Marhas, the king's son of Ireland. Son of the king of Ireland, you mean. The other form doesn't mean anything. And look out and hold on tight now. We must jump this gully. There we are, all right now. This horse belongs in the circus. He is born before his time. I know him well, said Sir Ewain. He is a passing good knight, as any is on live. On live? If you've got a fault in the world, Sandy, it is that you are a shade too archaic. But it isn't any matter. For I saw him once proved at a justs, where many knights were gathered. And that time there were no man withstand him. Ah, said Sir Gawain, damsels, methinketh ye are to blame, for it is to suppose that he that hung that shield there will not be long therefrom and then may those knights match him on horseback. And that is more your worship than thus. 
for I will abide no longer to see a knight's shield dishonored. And therewith Sir Ewain and Sir Gawain departed a little from them. And then, where they were where, Sir Marhaus came riding on a great horse straight toward them. And when the twelve damsels saw Sir Marhaus, they fled into the turret as they were wild, so that some of them fell by the way. Then the one of the knights of the tower dressed his shield, and said on high, Sir Marhaus, defend thee! And so they ran together, that the knight brake his spear on Marhaus, and Sir Marhaus smote him so hard that he brake his neck and the horse's back. Well, that is just the trouble about this state of things. It ruins so many horses. That saw the other knight of the turret, and dressed him toward Marhaus. And they went so eagerly together that the knight of the turret was soon smitten down, horse and man, stark dead. Another horse gone. I tell you, it is a custom that ought to be broken up. I don't see how people with any feeling can applaud and support it. So these two knights came together with great ransom. I saw I had been asleep and missed a chapter, but I didn't say anything. I judged that the Irish knight was in trouble with the visitors by this time, and this turned out to be the case. That Sir Ewain smote Sir Marhaus, and his spear brassed in pieces on the shield, and Sir Marhaus smote him so sore that horse and man he bare to the earth, and hurt Sir Ewain on the left side. The truth is, Alessandy, these archaics are a little too simple. The vocabulary is too limited, and so by consequence descriptions suffer in the matter of variety. They run too much to level Saharas of fact, and not enough to picturesque detail. This throws about them a certain air of the monotonous. In fact, the fights are all alike. A couple of people come together with great random. Random is a great word, and so is exegesis for that matter, and so is holocaust, and defalcation, and usufruct, and a hundred others, but land! A body ought to discriminate. They came together with great random and a spear is brassed, and one party break his shield, and the other one goes down, horse and man, over his tail, and break his neck. And then the next candidate comes randoming in, and brassed his spear, and the other man brassed his shield, and down he goes, horse and man, over his horse tail, and break his neck. And then there's another elected, and another, and another, and still another, till the material is all used up. And when you come to figure up results, you can't tell one fight from another, nor who whipped. And as a picture of living, raging, roaring battle show. Why, it's pale and noiseless, just goats scuffling in a fog. Dear me, what would this barren vocabulary get out of the mightiest spectacle? The burning of Rome in Nero's time, for instance. Why, it would merely say, Town burned down. No insurance. Boy brassed a window. Fireman break his neck. Why, that ain't a picture! 
It was a good deal of a lecture, I thought, but it didn't disturb Sandy, didn't turn a feather. Her steam soared steadily up again the minute I took off the lid. Then Sir Marhaus turned his horse and rode toward Gawain with his spear, and when Sir Gawain saw that, he dressed his shield, and they invented their spears, and they came together with all the might of their horses, that either knight smote other so hard, in the midst of their shields. But Sir Gawain's spear brake. I knew it would. But Sir Marhaus's spear held, and therewith Sir Gawain and his horse rushed down to the earth, just so, and brake his back. And lightly Sir Gawain rose upon his feet and pulled out his sword, and dressed him toward Sir Marhaus on foot. And therewith either came unto other eagerly and smote together with their swords, that their shields flew in cantels. And they bruised their helms and their harbricks and wounded each other. But Sir Gawain, fro it past nine of the clock, waxed by the space of three hours ever stronger and stronger, and thrice his might was increased. All this espied Sir Marhas, and had great wonder how his might increased, and so they wounded other passing sore. And then, when it was come noon, the pelting sing-song of it carried me forward to scenes and sounds of my boyhood days. Near Haven! Ten minutes for refreshments. Conductor'll strike the gong bell two minutes before train leaves. Passengers for the shoreline, please take seats in the rear car. This car don't go no further. Apples, oranges, bananas, sandwiches, popcorn. And waxed past noon and drew toward evensong. Sir Gawain's strength feebled and waxed passing faint, that unneath he might dure any longer, and Sir Marhaus was then bigger and bigger, which strained his armor, of course, and yet little would one of these people mind a small thing like that. And so, Sir Knight, said Sir Marhaus, I have well felt that ye are a passing good knight, and a marvelous man of might as ever I felt any, while it lasteth and our quarrels are not great, and therefore it were a pity to do you hurt, for I feel you are passing feeble. Ah, said Sir Gawain, gentle knight, ye say the word that I should say. And therewith they took off their helms, and either kissed other, and there they swore together either to love other as brethren. But I lost the thread there, and dozed off to slumber, thinking about what a pity it was that men with such superb strength, strength enabling them to stand up, cased in cruelly burdensome iron, and drenched with perspiration, and hack and batter and bang each other for six hours on a stretch, should not have been born at a time when they could put it to some useful purpose. Take a jackass, for instance. A jackass has that kind of strength, and puts it to a useful purpose and is valuable to this world because he is a jackass. But a nobleman is not valuable because he is a jackass. It is a mixture that is always ineffectual, and should never have been attempted in the first place. And yet, once you start a mistake, the trouble is done, and you never know what is going to come of it. When I came to myself again, I began to listen. 
I perceived that I had lost another chapter, and that Alessandi had wandered a long way off with her people. And so they rode and came into a deep valley, full of stones. And thereby they saw a fair stream of water. Above thereby was the head of the stream, a fair fountain, and three damsels sitting thereby. In this country, said Sir Marhaus, came never night, since it was christened, but he found strange adventures. This is not good form, Alessandy. Sir Marhaus, the king's son of Ireland, talks like all the rest. You ought to give him a baroque, or at least a characteristic explicative. By this means, one could recognize him as soon as he spoke without his ever being named. It is a common literary device with the great authors. You should make him say, In this country, be yabbers, came never night since it was christened, but he found strange adventures, be yabbers. You see how much better that sounds? Came never night, but he found strange adventures, be jabbers. Of a truth it doth indeed, fair lord, albeit tis passing hard to say, though peradventure that will not tarry, but better speed with usage. And then they rode to the damsels, and either saluted other, and the eldest had a garland of gold about her head, and she was threescore winter of age or more. The damsel was? Even so, dear lord, and her hair was white under the garland. Celluloid teeth, nine dollars a set, as like as not, the loose-fit kind that go up and down like a porticus when you eat, and fall out when you laugh. The second damsel was of thirty winter age, with a circlet of gold about her head. The third damsel was but fifteen year of age. Billows of thought came rolling over my soul, and the voice faded out of my hearing. Fifteen. Break my heart. Oh, my lost darling, just her age who is so gentle and lovely, and all the world to me and whom I shall never see again. How the thought of her carries me back over wide seas of memory to a vague dim time, a happy time, so many, many centuries hence, when I used to wake in the soft summer mornings out of sweet dreams of her and say, Hello, Central, just to hear her voice come melting back to me with a, Hello, Hank. That was music to the spheres of my enchanted ear. She got three dollars a week, but she was worth it. I could not follow Alessandi's further explanation of who our captured knights were. Now, I mean in case she should ever get to explaining who they were. My interest was gone. My thoughts were far away and sad. By fitful glimpses of the drifting tale caught here and there and... Now and then I merely noted in a vague way that each of these three knights took one of these three damsels up behind him on his horse, and one rode north, another east, the other south, to seek adventures, and meet again, and lie, after year and day, year and day, and without baggage. It was of a piece with the general simplicity of the country. The sun was now setting, 
It was about three in the afternoon with Alice Sandy had begun to tell me who the cowboys were, so she had made pretty good progress with it for her. She would arrive some time or other, no doubt, but she was not a person who could be hurried. We were approaching a castle which stood on high ground, a huge, strong, venerable structure whose gray towers and battlements were charmingly draped with ivy and whose whole majestic mass was drenched with splendors flung from the sinking sun. It was the largest castle we had seen, and so I thought it might be the one we were after, but Sandy said no. She did not know who owned it. She said she had passed it without calling when she went down to Camelot. End of chapter 15. Be yabbers.